what you want is to teach will you play with me or you know what are you doing like appropriate social skills Hello and welcome to Why Don't We Just, a podcast about the complex answers to simple questions. My name is Dale Vavasor and this is episode one of Why Don't We Just Ask People to Change. Whether it is working towards long-term goals or breaking a nasty habit, we're exploring the hidden complexities that make behaviour change difficult. This episode, to start us off investigating the question at hand, we are talking to... In Casco, I work in the School of Psychology at Victoria. A university in Wellington. And my research is about gambling and impulsivity and decision making. Anne McCaskill is a part of the research tradition in psychology known as behaviourism, one of the oldest in modern psychology. To behaviourists, rather than mental processes, feelings or survey answers, the primary object of interest is behaviour and they believe you can draw a causal line from behaviour to aspects of the environment. Historically, some strands of behaviourism proclaimed that thoughts did not exist at all or should be treated as such because they were unobservable. However, as Anne puts it nowadays... But the idea is behaviourism is about how our behaviour interacts with the environment. So everything that's around you... And those behaviours include thoughts and feelings. So the idea isn't that we don't have thoughts, they're not important. It's just that thoughts are not special. And you, what you think about um, is occurs because of your experience in the past and your context and culture and society. The reason Anne talks about experience and I mentioned environment is that when you talk about how these things cross behaviour, what you're really talking about is the concept of reinforcement. That aspects of the world around you makes your behaviour either more or less likely. Which can be simple things like having a delicious meal at the end of a long day, or they can be more abstract things like getting a degree. Um, that's something that's valuable to a lot of people. So reinforcement learning is about how our behaviour is shaped by the outcomes of our things that we do. The bad things that we can get rid of, that we can improve our lives, and the good things that we can produce. Of course, it can get a lot more complicated than that. You need to consider schedules, proximity, generalising effects and so on. But the main thing we need to understand for this podcast is the following general principle. Things in our environment can act as cues for our behaviour. If that behaviour results in something we enjoy, we're more likely to do that behaviour with that cue again. If it results in something we don't enjoy, we're less likely. For example, if you see an ad for McDonald's, and go to McDonald's as a result. Whether you enjoyed that meal makes it more or less likely that you'll go to McDonald's the next time you see an ad for them. This can be applied quite directly to our central question, why we don't just ask for change. With reinforcement in mind, if you ask someone to do something, them not doing it may be a sign that they find that behaviour unrewarding. A clear example of this is with water meters. Initiatives to ask citizens to reduce water usage can often struggle to work. There is minimal sense of reward for using less water. However, many locales have found that when they start charging people on a per litre basis, usage drops. All of a sudden, the act of consciously using less water has the benefit of lessening the charge you face. So let's go into like your research specifically. I think the stuff you've done on impulsivity 
is quite relevant to the question at hand. Do you want to talk about your research in that area for a bit? So if you think around what when you might say someone is being impulsive or when you might say they're being very self-controlled, one of the things that you might sort of notice is that often when we think of ourselves or other people as being self-controlled, we think that we're working towards something that we value that we're not going to get for a while. And it just happens that things that you're not going to get for a while have less of an effect on you and are harder to work towards. And that's if you struggle with something like you break your New Year's resolutions or you just keep procrastinating or you have a gym membership you never use, usually what you find at the root of that is you could have something less valuable you don't care about that much now, like your cosy time on the couch watching your Netflix. Or you could have something that you value more, which would be your good mark or your um, sticking to your exercise plan, whatever it is that matters to you. But that won't be until later. And you can see that in um, basically every species that has been looked at. And so that's just a thing that we have as people. And so our research is to understand that how that works, how a delay impacts our choices. In other words, things that happen now or sooner, all things being equal, are inherently more reinforcing than something that happens later. There's an experiment in Anne's lab that demonstrates this quite well, where you sit down at a computer and it asks you, would you like $5 right now, or would you like $20 in three days? All else being equal, $20 is much better than $5, but as researchers increase the delay before you get it, you become much more likely to choose the immediate $5 instead. With this in mind, I asked Anne what are some of the techniques for making that later reward much more enticing to people, for example, when completing a far-off due university assignment. Well, I guess one thing um, that we found in the literature is if you can make the long-term outcome more concrete and vivid and specific, that seems to really help. So it seems sort of um, unlikely and... um, But it turns out that if you imagine that long-term goal, just bring it to mind and think about it and really think, like, on graduation night, who is going to be there? Where are you going to go for dinner? What it would be like walking across the stage? What outfit are you going to wear? If you just think about that, it might actually help you get going on your assignment. That is, make the future more concrete. Take the things that will be rewarding then, and some other details to help set the scene, and use the act of imagination to effectively bring it forward. In terms of what sorts of things generally act as reinforcers or are rewarding to people... Well, there's a set of sort of maybe boring and obvious but I think important things that we would think of as primary reinforcers. So you want to be warm and well-fed and get some sleep and all of those things probably affect um, how actually we conduct our day-to-day lives and you sort of know that as a behaving human. There's probably also a set of social things that are either primary reinforcers that are built in the evolution has given us or we'd learn so early that they might as well be, and that would be things like being connected to other people, um, getting to spend time with other people, um, contributing to people that you care about. So all of those kind of social things um, 
connection and contribution uh, things that are valuable to most people. So contributing to your family has been important reinforcer for most people to some degree um, and also making progress and being confident and doing things well I think is also important, an important kind of reward. And then there's another set of things that are rewarding that depend on your particular experience. Um, and so those might be quite different across different people. So you know people who really love some kind of music that you think is terrible um, or some activity you think is boring. Most of these are what is called a primary enforcer, something that by itself is inherently rewarding to you. For example, eating really good food is something that nearly everyone finds inherently rewarding. As you may have guessed, specifying that these are primary reinforcers implies the existence of at least one further category. There are secondary reinforcers, and they are things that, over time, become reinforcing because they are associated with already reinforcing things. If you've heard of Pavlov's dog, where Pavlov rings a bell whenever he feeds his dog, and eventually just ringing the bell elicits the same physical response as feeding does. This is that. To offer a more human example, seeing your friend is often directly followed by having a pleasant, rewarding conversation with them. As this happens more, seeing the friend itself becomes something that is rewarding in its own sake, out of association with the pleasant conversations. But unless you have an extended period of time to work with someone, it's challenging to cultivate a secondary reinforcer to make behaviour change easier. So I asked Anne McCaskill what are some of the best ways to determine what unique reinforcers someone may have. Oh, for an adult, um, most people can tell you if you ask them what would you like to have. Um, and for a kid or um, somebody that has not very strong verbal skills, you can offer them a set of possible things and um, see what they go for. Um, and you also you can look and see what people do and why. So what are the things that people spend a lot of time on, they do a lot, they seem to work towards, and that's how you would figure it out from looking actually at what that person does. And then you can have a test and see if um, we had a kid that um, struggled with their um, getting up and getting organised and getting ready to go, if you let them do an, an activity you thought might be rewarding for five minutes at the end of that, when they're ready with their school bag and everything, do they actually do that more? And if they do, that you know that that is a reward for that particular kid. In other words, there are three options. A. You could ask them. B. You could try to reward and see if it works. And C. You can look to see what they work towards in other situations, as often that is something they've already found rewarding. However, so far, we've predominantly spoken about how to get someone to do something. So in turn, let's hear from Anne McCaskill about her research around gambling, and the difficulties in getting people to stop doing something. So basically what you'd want to know is, why is somebody doing that thing in the first place? And so to really understand what is the important value outcome that gambling provides for them. And particularly if that's something that's so important that they're willing to forego other things that they value. I think if you ask most people what is rewarding about slot machines, they would say 
a chance to win money and excitement and the socialising and eat to drink and it's all fun. But actually, in the interviews, it looks like problem gamblers talk a bit more about the idea that problem gambling helps them get away from um, difficult thoughts or feelings or anxieties or troubles and they describe that a slot machine will put them into this kind of machine zone where all of their problems melt away. So we would call that negative reinforcement. So it gets rid of some stress or problems. Why or how slot machines do that, I, I think is not known. Um, and that's something we need to figure out, why they produce a zone experience. Um, but once you understand that, then what you need to do is give people another way to access that. So don't worry about giving them something exciting. Give them a way to um, escape from their difficult to manage or get rid of those difficult problems and emotions that they're using gambling to cope with. And we all have sets of things that we do. If you've had a terrible day or a fight with somebody or something's not going well, where you have a bath or a glass of wine or read a book or watch it, you know, go for a walk. So those are the kind of coping strategies you've got to think that that's the kind of role that it's playing, not this excitement. Just to clarify, I'm not saying that a problem gambler can be solved if you say, I'll go for a walk instead. I'm just saying that yep. so that when you're thinking about your own life, you've got something to connect to that you can say, oh, yes, I have ways that I cope with when I'm having a difficult time. So while in the case of gambling, the answer may be to find something else that relieves their stress, the general answer is to find what it is that is driving them to that behaviour and identify alternative ways to provide that. If your flatmate tends to slam doors when they're stressed because the grip and the force of the action acts as stress relief, one of those squishy stress balls could act as an alternative. So altogether... Hopefully we now understand general principles behind getting people to do things or stop doing things. Before we wrap up, I would like to dip into just one advanced topic that may also be of use. See, what you ultimately probably want to achieve with behaviour change is that once you stop actively intervening, the change in behaviour remains. Everything we've spoken of up until this point doesn't indicate how to achieve that persistence of behaviour. This persistence is known as behavioural momentum. The way it used to be that what people thought was most important about behaviours was really how much you did them, and if you did them a lot or a little, and sometimes you have a problem that you're doing something too much, and sometimes you have a problem that you're doing something not enough. Um, and so people looked at that and understood what kind of outcomes in the environment tend to lead people to do things a lot and what tend to lead them to do a little. But then there was this sort of realisation that there's also this other really important dimension which is how persistent your behaviour is. So if you're working with, um, say there's some applied behaviour analytic research that's about, you know, kids that ran away from um, where they're supposed to be living or staying. And that's something that maybe they only do every six months, but it's a real problem. And so these kind of persistent but um, rare behaviours um, suggest that it's not just how much you do thing, something, but also it's how easy or hard it is to stop. And so the idea of behavioural momentum is trying to understand what kind of experiences lead you to do something very persistently. 
and it suggests that it's things that you've done in a context that's very rewarding. So if you do something, even if that behaviour doesn't produce those rewards, if it happens somewhere that has a lot of um, rewarding other things happening, it will become very persistent. In other words, if there are really strong rewards in a particular context, for example, eating a nice meal at a nice restaurant with good company in a pleasant atmosphere, all of the behaviours within that context will become more persistent, even if they weren't directly reinforced. So if you want someone to keep doing the thing you want them to do, take that context and make as many of the behaviours in that context rewarding as possible. But again, this leads us to the inverse. If you're trying to get someone to stop doing something, and you find it is a really persistent behaviour, how do you disrupt behavioural momentum? The first thing we can note is that if rewarding other things in the same context may make the problem behaviour more persistent, something you want to avoid is teaching them alternatives to their behaviour in that same context. As Anne describes it, People are worried about how, in applied settings, often what you do is try to make a context very rewarding and teach people other useful adaptive things that they can do to get the reward. And so there's been some concern that that produces this um, unintended side effect of making the problem thing more persistent. With this in mind... One thing people have looked at is often when you're trying to stop a behaviour, what you want to do is give somebody some other way to get that rewarding thing they value in a more adaptive way. So if you think of a kid that um, has a toy they love or they really want to be feel connected and get attention from their family um, and socialise, and the way they've learned to do that is to lie on the floor and kick and scream, what you want is to teach, will you play with me or, you know, what are you doing, like, appropriate social skills. And so... One of the things that people have thought about from the momentum side is if you taught those skills in a different context, that could help solve the problem. Um, so that would be one thing that people have thought about. The other thing you can do is make other contexts more rewarding so that the one that the problem thing is happening in isn't the most rewarding one. And with that, we should have some general principles for why it's not actually that easy to change behaviour from one perspective at least. To recap, to get people to do something, your best bet is to identify what they find rewarding and grant that whenever they do the thing you want. If you want them to stop something, reward them for not doing the thing. One thing to be careful of is the persistence of behaviour. If you not just reward the behaviour you want, but also other things in that same context, that behaviour may be more persistent. Similarly, if you're trying to lead someone to an alternate behaviour to the one you dislike, try to avoid rewarding it in the same context as the unwanted one. I do want to talk about ethics for a moment. Trying to train someone without their consent can be an insult to their autonomy. If they slam doors when stressed, offering an alternative like a stress ball is fine, but giving them little treats whenever they don't slam the door without telling them why is not. If the behaviour you want to work towards involves extended reinforcement, what you want is to get this person on board with you. Of course, and this is the wonderful thing about behaviourist techniques, these also work on yourself. And if you work with yourself, you basically already have given consent to the things you do. 
classic example is giving yourself a little treat whenever you do a bit of work. But we can apply what we've learned to other examples, like if you're struggling to write, make the context in which you would be writing a generally reinforcing context to be in. But for now, thank you everyone for listening. I greatly appreciate the time Anne McCaskill spent to answer my questions. I offer additional thanks to her, the Centre for Science and Society for supporting my work, and again, all of you. You can get in touch with me at whydon'twejustnz at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at whydon'twejustnz. The intro is called The Drama, the outro, Dreams of Fane, both are by Raphael Crux, and I'll see you again soon. So what are like some of the specific things that makes it difficult for me to say ask you, hey, could you do this thing that has no short-term benefit? But I tr- assure you, it's got good there things has, down the line. Oh, there has no short-term benefit to me. 